Hello, Bridgetown podcast watchers and listeners. I'm Tyler Staten, the lead pastor of Bridgetown Church. And I would love to invite you to consider giving to our Christmas giving campaign this Advent season. It will extend all the way through year end, and we are raising funds toward three particular initiatives, Justice Allies, Justice Actions, and Bridgetown Kids. Every cent given will go to those three initiatives. You can find out much more and give at bridgetown.church give. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to testify concerning that light, so that through him all might believe. He himself was not the light. He came as only a witness to the light. The true light that gives to everyone was coming, out, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. Yet to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become the children of God. Now this was John's testimony when the Jewish leaders in Jerusalem sent priests and Levites to ask him who he was. He did not fail to confess, but confessed freely. I am not the Messiah. They asked him, then who are you? Are you Elijah? He said, I am not. Are you the prophet? He answered, no. Finally, they said, who are you? Give us an answer to take back to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? John replied in the words of Isaiah the prophet, I am the voice of one calling in the wilderness. Make straight the way for the Lord. Now the Pharisees who had been sent questioned him. Why do you baptize if you are not the Messiah, nor Elijah, nor the prophet? I baptize with water, John replied. But among you stands one you do not know. He is the one who comes after me. The straps of those whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. This is the word of the Lord. This summer, my best friend Heidi and I decided to commit to participating regularly together in being near to the poor of our city. God had begun to stir in both of us a new desire to go where he would be if he were in Portland. And so we ended up partnering with an organization that works closely with the houseless population, and they do so every week. And one of our first weeks serving, we ended up signing up a bit late, and so we got placed on a team uh, that we're planning to do what they call a walkabout, where you carry socks and sandwiches and drinks uh, and walk the city, in particular the houseless camps downtown, and then you offer these goods as well as prayer and presents to those who probably regularly get overlooked for things like that. And I have to be honest, I think we both thought this is not really our first choice for how we want to dip our toe into this kind of service. It felt like kind of intense. But we had done similar work in the past, so we buoyed ourselves up with a cocktail of nerves and joy and kept going. And as I began to walk the streets and hand out food and drink and clothing in this forced engagement, I began to feel grief wash over me. And this happened as I came face to face with the reality of my limited sight, 
of what I had failed to see, not only of those in our city, but of the God who lives among them. The camps and the people in them have been in my line of sight for 15 years now. And yet this was one of the first times I had actually seen them. We all probably have had moments like this, even this year, when something that was hidden in plain sight, whether it be big or small, spiritual or not, finally becomes visible to you, whether that's a toothbrush or a jug of milk in the fridge or the love of your life. Humans, we have this odd propensity and ability to see what we want to see, don't we? or not to see what we don't want to see. We have this ability to limit or expand our gaze based on our preferences or our paradigms or our perceptions. Sight or our ability to see something, even if it's right before our face and even if it's wildly significant, has so much to do with what we think we know about the object or the person in our view. Seeing something rightly Not missing even the most obvious of realities usually has less to do with what we're beholding and more about the posture or the context in which we are beholding that something. The question I asked God as I drove home that night from serving was, what else am I missing? What else had I failed to recognize or see that was right in front of me? Now, like Tyler said, today is the first Sunday of Advent. It is here that we begin our journey together, a journey to Christmas. Advent means, like he said, arrival, but the Advent journey, the road we walk to the celebration of Christmas is one that, despite the hustle and bustle of the season, will demand our attention. It will invite us to see, maybe in a new way, what is right before our eyes. But in order to do this, in order to begin the journey, we'll have to back up from the manger, the manger and begin with two men named John. Now, not John number one, who I'm affectionately calling John number one, was the apostle, John the apostle. This is Jesus' disciple, and this is the guy who wrote the words that we read this morning. John was Jesus' friend, and he lived and he ate with him. He, he saw him do miracles and was present to many of the wild events of Jesus' life, including his death, which means that his writing was a firsthand account of what took place when Jesus was on the earth. Now, what we really need to know about John number one is that he knew Jesus. And that sets the tone and the context for what he says as he begins this book that he's writing, as he starts his account of both what he believed and knew the Messiah of the world would be. And John begins to tell this story of how he lives, and this is how he starts it. He says, God has come. He moved into our human neighborhood, and Jesus, he is God. He was the one everyone had been waiting for. He is the savior of the world. John started his book out this way because for him, it encompassed the most important message of his life. Now, John number two, or John the Baptist, or John the B to his friends, was an interesting fellow. I thought that was funny. I I laugh every time I say John the B. Anybody else? I mean, you should try it at the holidays. Okay, John the B, he was interesting, wasn't he? And yet, at the same time, in all his weirdness, he was a key figure in the life and the story of Christmas, of Jesus. John number two was Jesus's cousin, and he lived, as Jesus did, both a prophetic and miraculous life. From his conception to his bizarre death, John's life 
was wild and weird in many ways, and yet at the same time, it was deeply woven like the other John and intertwined with the life and the message of Jesus. From birth, John the Baptist was given a clear purpose, and that was to, as we read, even read today in the first part of our scripture, he was meant to tell the world about this Messiah, this rescuer that was coming to set the world to rights. And his goal was to ready everyone for this one who would come to prepare them for his arrival. And he was to do this through the telling and the retelling of these ancient promises or prophecies that would show the world how to look for this Messiah in all the ways they were told he would come. John, as we read, was a witness to the light, a witness to the Messiah, and he was also in many ways a disruption to the darkness. John spent his life telling the world that there was something more to see, if only they had eyes to see it. Now, remember that sight doesn't always mean vision, and that was true, in particular for those who were hearing these messages from both of our Johns. When it comes to those who are meant to see the light, it's important for us to know that set against the backdrop of all these messages being shot at them from these Johns stood a community that was for 400 years hoping and longing and expecting the Messiah to come. Before John the Baptist began wearing bearskins and eating local grasshoppers and shouting that God was here, stood traditions and rhythms amongst the Jewish people that regularly called them to look forward to this exact moment, to look forward towards another deliverance much like the one that they had experienced from Egypt. You see, this moment, this moment we're going to explore in just a minute in the scriptures, while seemingly an odd introduction to both Christmas and to two men named John, was actually a fulcrum point of history for the Jewish people what they were training their whole lives to see. And yet, it seems that many missed it altogether. Now today we're gonna look at this moment and further uh, dig a little bit deeper and then we're gonna take an honest inventory of our hearts. So with that, would you look with me at John chapter one and we're gonna start in verse six. And I just wanna read this just to give us a little refresh and help set the tone for where we're headed. There was a man sent from God whose name was John, and he came as a witness to testify concerning that light, so that through him all might believe. He himself was not the light, he came only as a witness to the light. The true light that gives light to everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world, and though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. Now here we begin with John number one, speaking in this kind of cosmic and almost meta way about the coming of the Messiah, and he's drawing our attention to this historical fulcrum moment. And it's not what we'd expect. He starts out and basically says, the light of the world came, the Messiah is in the picture, and John the bee, John number two, was sent to tell you so. But despite being ready, in a bizarre turn of events, we read that though he came, and when he did, the people did not recognize him. Now, the word recognize here could also be translated to know, and know here means both understanding or perceiving. And it also means to intimately know, like a husband knows a wife. So what we're told here is that the world not only didn't perceive God in their midst, but that they also didn't know him. 
Now, this is mind-blowing in many ways. I mean, your entire life centers around not only rituals meant to draw your attention and to ready you for this exact moment, but also you have a man who's a little bit wild and strange, and yet he's hanging around and saying, guys, this is it. This is it. And yet, we read that they still didn't recognize him. Now look down with me at verse 19. We don't have time to read that again, but I want you to meet me back here on this page. And what I want you to see is that now John, our author, actually zooms in on the prophet John the Baptist. And it's here that we read that John finds himself in the middle of a group of religious leaders. Those, again, who would have been trained to see the coming of the Messiah. And he begins by humbly stating that he is not the one that they are looking for. He is not the Messiah himself. Now, we don't know exactly why he starts out like that or how he found himself amongst this crew, but what we can at least speculate is that there was a bit of buzz around John's message and the religious people had to scope it out. And man, do they. They drill him. And in essence, they say, who are you and why are you speaking this message? And in response, John, in verse 23, quotes this ancient scripture with a prophecy in it. And the prophecy is about him. Now, if I were in this moment, I would love to give those religious leaders a little wink. Do you know what I mean? If I was about to say something like that, I'd be like, me. <laughs> you know? Now, again, these religious leaders would have known this scripture. They would have known this prophecy. So as John speaks it out, he's kind of doing so in a punchy, kind of cheeky way. And he says straight from Isaiah chapter 40, I am the voice of the one calling in the wilderness. Make straight the way for the Lord. This was a moment. And not just for the leaders, but for the people of the day. John is not only saying that the Messiah was coming and that he was here, but he was saying, me being here in the flesh before your eyes is the fulfillment of the prophecy indicating that it's time. And this should have been like a, a wow moment, like a ding, ding, y'all, this is happening, so exciting, and yet instead we read that it's crickets. The religious leaders, skip, without skipping a beat, still unable to see, fixated on the answer they want to hear, say, well, if you're not the Messiah, then why do you do these things that a Messiah would do? Why are you baptizing people? Now, to us, it seems a little weird to ask that question, but here it's important because John's response is key in defining who Jesus would be. He says, I baptize with water, and in doing that, he is emphasizing that his ministry only uses physical tools and rituals, which in turn highlights that the ministry of Jesus will go far beyond any rituals to actual saving power. John knew what he was doing and what he was saying. In verse 26, John wraps up the moment because it didn't go quite as well as he had hoped. And he boldly says to them, among you stands one you do not know. He is the one who comes after me, the straps of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. This last phrase was a bit of a mic drop this was a phrase uh, spoken in a very human moment amongst a community with what we believe to be Jesus present. And it not only summarizes John the Baptist's conversation with the people, but it also summarizes John the author's heart as well. John, our author, writes in his book explicitly about the meaning of life, about this cosmic entrance that the Messiah makes in the world. And in his first chapter, he basically says, don't you see it? 
Don't you see him, the light, the one who pierces the dark places in us and in the world? He's here. And yet at the end of the chapter, he reflects and says, and nobody noticed. And then we have John the Baptist, and he's speaking into this real-life community, into the community that would, would in both time and place be where Jesus lived and had friendships and new neighbors. And it's here that he reiterates John's message, but in a more communal, kind of boots-on-the-ground way. And yet he, too, recognizes that despite Jesus being in their actual midst, it seems that, that no one noticed. And both of our Johns grieve the tragedy found within Advent, the tragedy of the king who came and yet was missed by so many. Now in this great tragedy and in this season, though I think many of us would excuse ourselves for various reasons, we are invited to find our place. In Advent, we are called to center or recenter ourselves on the truth of what it means that God put on flesh and he entered into the human story that that he came near, that he became knowable. But that's easier said than done. Because the truth is, in Advent, just like with an anniversary or a birthday, we will be invited to recount and revisit, even collectively remember the details of this story and where it actually intersects with our lives. Where it collides with where we're living and what we're believing and what we're hoping for. And just like in any other relationship, this once a year moment will offer us the gift of perspective. The space to truly celebrate, but also to recalibrate, to see and consider what maybe we too have missed along the way. And that isn't always an easy thing to do because both celebration and recalibration are messy and revealing events because hindsight is 2020 which means that we'll have to consider what we're willing to confront and even ask of ourselves and of God in this season and how those two things demand a measure of honesty that could either disrupt us or comfort us. Now, in order for us to get there, to, to actually place ourselves in this Advent moment, we'll have to start by observing the tragedy that our John spoke to in our text today. You'll remember that we were told that both the priest and the people missed Jesus. Both were studied and practiced to see him and still they did not. And the question we're left with in that moment is why? And the answer, though fairly obvious, is one that is not so unfamiliar to most of us. To put it simply, Jesus did not come in the way the priest thought he would or should. And he did not come in the way that the people had hoped. You see, they wanted a conquering hero, a warrior who would fight for them, who would come against Rome. Even the prophecies about this, this king was that he would be a ruler, that he would be a wonderful counselor, that he would be a prince of peace. And it was their understanding and their perception or interpretation of who he would be and how he would come and what he would do that ultimately led them to a blindness that kept them from him altogether. Jesus, this poor Mason from Nazareth, a bastard child to most, how could he be what they were looking for? You see, for me, it's been very easy to judge the priests and the people in our text. I'm honestly like, you've got to be kidding me as I'm reading this. And that is until I actually consider that their humanity is very much like mine. 
and how I too have an expectation about Jesus. We all do, whether you follow him or not. And just like the priest and the people, your expectation of him is personal. Because by his very nature, we know he is a knowable God. You too, you have an idea about who he should be, or how he should help, or what he should look like, and think like, and be like, and how he should help you or those that you love. Again, not just in a cosmic way or universal way, but in a personal way. And therein lies a bit of our problem or the rub for most of us. You see, we cannot divorce the journey of Advent, this Christmas story, from the reality of God's arrival and how that intersects our real lives. And you cannot divorce the reality of those in the text from who we are and how we too are and will experience God coming to us. You see, some of them missed him because he was too humble. And some of them missed him because they were not humble enough. And we can do the same. So how do we recognize Jesus? And what are those things, those things that live within us that might keep us from recognizing him in our midst, and in particular in this season? Maybe a better way to ask that is how do we prepare well for the coming of Jesus, for this celebration of Christmas? for the gift and the reality of his presence among us in this season. I believe our preparation starts by first confronting our circumstances and then surrendering our crown. Now, I know many of you in this room because we're friends and I get to to do life with you. And so I know that even for myself, many of us are rolling into this holiday season with some kind of ache deep within whether big or small. You see, Christmas, while it is a magical time of year, it is also a revealing one, and most of us know that. There is something about this season that, like water, it finds the lowest places. And for many of us, the declaration of God's presence and his arrival will drudge up a reverb of frustration and pain. If God is really in our midst, then why does my life look like this? Why is my heart broken? Why hasn't he rescued me or healed me? You see, Christmas can evoke holy imagination, but it can also provoke holy aggravation, especially for those of us in places of hopelessness and desperation. Our circumstances or how we perceive God in them often shadow our ability to see God in our midst. Many of you have cried out and begged and looked for God's presence and deliverance for you only to feel as though he is far off or too small in his coming or even too late. And I've been there. I mean, if you know me, you know I've been there so many times. Even this past summer, I was walking through a season really of desperation that led to spiritual disorientation. I wasn't apostate, I definitely wasn't quitting my job and I wasn't going crazy, but I was wrestling with God and really wondering where he was at in my life. And one of the things that was most helpful was a conversation, and really I would call it a confrontation that I had in Laurelhurst Park with a friend. This friend listened to me as I put God on the stand for being such a failure to me as I accused him of being indifferent and uncaring and absent when I needed him the most. 
And after I had finished, this friend quietly in a smattering of words I cannot remember reminded me that God hardly ever comes the way we want him to, but he comes nonetheless. And for a reason I can't explain, the reality came crashing into my heart and it shattered the lens that blocked my view of God's presence with me. It shattered the expectations I had of how he should come and help me and it forced me to shift my eyes back to the places I thought he wasn't and to see where he was. And I have to tell you, because I know this is true, when that happened, everything was different. When you can recognize God with you, everything changes. You see, at the intersection of our pain or our circumstances or whatever it is, is an invitation to see God, to find him in your midst. But at the same time, there is also the potential to miss him, to allow our circumstances to be the roadblock to recognition. If we reduce God to less than our expectations and allow that to be the barometer for his presence, we will always miss him. Often, the way God meets us looks a lot more messy or slow or complex than we'd want. And instead of waiting to see where he actually is in it all, most of us just avert our eyes and claim he was never with us. But this is the beauty and the gift of Christmas, is that no matter what our perception is, he is always with us. Advent, for those who cannot find him, is for you. It is for those who right now are carrying angst and broken hearts. It's for those who carry any kind of ache or tragedy within this season. Christmas is a stark reminder that, that though Jesus may not come the way you want him to or expect him to with pomp and circumstance, or I'd prefer with the infantry, he still comes. You see, God is personal, he is not prescriptive. And he has come through Jesus to meet us, to empathize with us, to suffer with us right here and now. And he is not playing a game. He is just jealous for you to see him as he really is, not as you want him to be. Dietrich Bonhoeffer said that the celebration of Advent is possible only to those who are troubled in soul who know themselves to be poor and imperfect and who look forward to something greater to come. Advent is precisely for those of us who come into this season with need. For those of us who need God to come and to be in our midst. In our darkness, we need to find him and though he may not come in the way we want him to, he will still come. But in order to see him, we will have to confront the reality of our circumstances and honestly allow him to come as he wants to, to be revealed to you as he really is. And I can tell you, it is always far better when he comes this way. Now, for some, your ability to recognize God is not as much connected to your circumstances as much as it is connected to your heart. You see, God's coming in Advent isn't always a comfort. For some, it is more of a disruption. Within this story of God coming to the world is an inauguration of a kingdom, and within that, a king. And when the king walks into the room 
and breaks into our world, all lesser kingdoms are revealed. You see, in Advent, what becomes clear is that there is really only one kingdom that will last, and there is really only one king who can rule. For many, it has or It's been an easy thing to reduce God, whether conscious or subconscious, to a helpless baby in a manger. And that has allowed us to believe that he's nothing more than just that. That picture, that image has, for many people, shadowed the reality of his power, his ability to be or to be known as God, and ultimately our ability to recognize him in our midst. Many of us have dismissed him not because he isn't what we want, but because we are failing to see him for who he actually is. And understanding that changes everything. Even Herod, the king who was ruling when Jesus came, understood this. He knew that a king in his midst would challenge his kingdom, but also his ability to rule as he wanted to. He simply heard rumors from some magi in the east that a king might be born in Bethlehem, and from that we find him living the rest of his life in a struggle between power and paranoia. He even inaugurates a genocide to keep this baby king at bay. Herod knew what most of us failed to see, that a king in his midst would demand the giving up of his kingdom. And it's no different for us. God's arrival this season is an invitation for us to truly recognize God in our midst, but also an invitation to recognize him for who he actually is and for who he will be when he comes again. God is not an accessory to the holiday season. He is not simply a symbol to value. He is a king to be trembled at. And the next time he returns in his second advent, we will see him coming. And this time he won't come in a manger. He will come on a horse with a sword. Advent is for those of us who need to remember that we are not the king. We are not the rightful rulers of our lives. And failing to recognize that will cost us truly experiencing God in our midst. Advent is for those of us who need to be reminded that their kingdom and their crown have to go in order to truly see the one who has come into the world. Confronting our circumstances and laying down our crown, these are just two really simple things and there's so much more that could be said about them. But these two things, they open the door for us to begin this journey, to move in this season and Both of these things can be a catalyst for sight because both allow us to see God in our midst. Henry Nouwen says this about Advent, the Lord is coming, always coming. When you have ears to hear and eyes to see, you will recognize him at any moment of your life. Life is Advent. Life is recognizing the coming of the Lord. If we are to experience this season as it was meant to be, we will have to learn to recognize God within it. And we'll have to confront anything that keeps us from truly seeing. In Advent, we begin with what we see. John, our author, tells us that Jesus is the light of the world. And that imagery is meant to tell us that his coming would illuminate both what we need to see 
and what we have failed to see. As we wait for Jesus in this season, as we anticipate his arrival, we will be invited to have eyes wide open, to see him and to see the ways he is coming or maybe has already come to us. The question each of us are left with, the question each of us have to ask is will we recognize him or not?